Just a couple of days ago, middle of last week, I was able to sit down and have breakfast with a friend that I haven't talked to in a while. And so we, uh, we sat down and just catching up. And my gosh, he's got a schizophrenic son. And it is just a nightmare and has been for, gosh, he's getting to be 15, 20 years now. He's in prison. He's out of prison. You know, he's, he's in addiction. He's out of addiction. He's taking his meds. He's not taking his meds. It just seems to be one thing after another, pinging the meter back from one side to another. If you can imagine what that's doing to your psyche as a parent, those of you who are parents. Sometimes he's homeless, sometimes he's in a shelter, sometimes he's this or that. Sometimes he's with his mother's house and sometimes he's with his. And wherever he goes, he seems to just tear up the pavement. And it is so difficult to live that way. And just live banging back and forth between these poles, between these seemingly mutually exclusive frames of mind that his son gets into. And after we talked about that, we just started talking about, you know, life and work and all that. And he's been a small business owner for most of his adult life. And I'm in ministry, so we started uh, (laughs) crying in our cornflakes a little bit about the nature of living month to month. Those of you who've done that, those of you who are... Uh, either, you know, uh, craftsmen of some sort, construction or running your own businesses, you know. When you have your own business, you basically have three jobs. You've got to get the work, you've got to do the work, you've got to collect for the work, and it's always up and down, and you never know from month to month necessarily, unless you get very successful, if there's any security there. And that's kind of the, been his experience, you know, month-to-month kind of existence and certainly been mine and ours here in, in ministry. That every month you're wondering if there's another month. And as we were talking about it, though, I started thinking, and I have thought this before, that this is really closer to the way I think God designed us to live. You know, when human beings started out, we were all hunter-gatherers, and we gathered whatever we could get for the day, and we ate it, and, and then cooked it, and you know, then we went on to the next day and the next day after that. And every day, we got just enough that we needed for this day. And there wasn't a lot of storing up. That came later with agriculture and with urban dwelling and all of that. But to live within the day, what does Jesus tell us to pray in his model prayer? He says, give us the bread of our need this day. That's the way it translates directly from the Aramaic, from his language. Give us the need of our bread this day, just this day, the bread of our need this day. The manna of the Israelites, it only lasted for the day. If you tried to store it up, it was rotten by the next day. And so there's something about being really tied to the day, to the month, that keeps us closer somehow to presence, to purpose, to what it means to be human. And so as we were talking about this, we were kind of bringing in these themes and just talking about how interesting it is, you know, when you end up in this dilemma, I suppose, between security and freedom. And this is so much where we live. You know, there's this human craving for security. We want to know things. We want to have enough for the winter. We want to have enough for retirement in 20, 30 years out. And yet at the same time, there's this craving for security, which ends up at the opposite end of the spectrum, And somehow we realize that if I'm doing my corporate job sitting in my cubicle and getting my paycheck that is guaranteed with so much rate increases year by year for cost of living, that I have a security there. I can plan my household budget. I can plan vacations. But we know that there's something missing also 
on the freedom side. There's an exhilaration that's missing. There, there's something that... And so we keep going back and forth between these two things and begin to wonder, how are we supposed to make choices in the midst of all of this? How do we get off the horns of that particular dilemma? How do we get back to a place of just contentment, to be content within the situation we find ourselves? And even when we think we've got security, it's really an illusion, isn't it? I mean, it can be taken from us an instant. The way stock markets go up and down and house prices go up and down and jobs, I mean, is there really any security in jobs and corporations anymore? And so really, we are all living this day-to-day and month-by-month existence, whether we understand it so or not. And so how do we then move through this? How do we face these dilemmas in life? Y'all ever heard of the Scylla and the Charybdis? No? Oh, where's your classical training? You remember, I read your Homer lately and, and the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, you know, the Trojan War, and when Odysseus is coming back from the Trojan War, he has all these various trials and things that he has to face as he's trying to get back to his home island of Ithaca. And one of them is the Scylla and the Charybdis. And this really refers to the Straits of Messina. It's only about less than two mile, miles of water between the mainland of Italy and, and the island of Sicily. And supposedly there were two sea monsters, one on either side. The Scylla was understood as a six-handed sea monster that was perched in the rocks of the shore. And the Charybdis was this deep water monster that was symbolized by a whirlpool. And they were close enough together that you could not (laughs) go through the straits and avoid them both at the same time. And so Odysseus has to navigate this short strait. And if he goes too far to one side, he is sucked down by the whirlpool. And if he goes too far to the other side, he is attacked by the six-headed sea monster. And this has become, apparently not for us so much, but part of our idiom in, in English about being between a rock and a hard place, choosing the lesser of evils, the Scylla and the Charybdis. Anybody curious to know what Odysseus did? What would you choose? If he had to choose between those, you couldn't avoid them both. Where would you go? What would you do? He chose to go near the Scylla because his reasoning was it's a six-headed sea monster. At most, he could get six of his crewmen and then he could sail on and save his boat and save his life. On the other side, he loses everything. So that's what he did. And he lost the crewmen, but he was able to continue on. When faced with a choice between lesser of evils, what do we do? How do we get off the horns of these dilemmas? How do we choose these things in life? The problem is is that we see them as a yes and no choice. We see them as sort of a binary code. And both choices carry risk. And there's where all of the the angst comes in. How do we do this? How do we make these choices? There's so many people that I've talked to, and I, I just have to say, yeah, all the easy choices have been made. You're left with nothing but the difficult choices the Scylla and the Charybdis. So many of you parents with, uh, with children who are addicted, you know what I'm talking about. There's just no good choices left. And you're trying to make these choices between these poles and these dualities. The beautiful thing is that Jesus didn't shy away from these types of situations. In fact, not only did he not shy away, he dove into them. He pinpointed them. He pushed into them because what he realized is, is that on these dilemmas, in these areas, It's really a revealing and an uncovering of what it means to be human and what it means to make these choices and how this relates to us moving into a deeper spiritual life and a deeper spiritual understanding. So he used these specifically to move in. Okay, so for instance, this idea of of us stuck between security and freedom, as so many of us are, 
Jesus is giving us a story here, and you can find it on the front of your top of your bulletins. It comes from John 12, starting at verse 24. And this is a saying of Jesus where he is just hitting this right on the head. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Now, this is one of those paradoxical backward sayings of Jesus that is so difficult for us to comprehend, so difficult to understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. But this idea of the seed is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for life. It's a metaphor of our need for human security, that craving that we have. You know, to love your life or to save your life, as it's, uh, as it's translated in Matthew, to cling to life in some way is to lose it. In some way is to go in the opposite direction of where Jesus is trying to take us. And so here we are with this. As long as the seed clings to itself, as long as it clings to being a seed, then it's alone. It's dry. It's a husk. It's dead for all intents and purposes. And it is purposeless. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. As long as it insists on being a seed. But dying to seedness, falling into moist ground, it meets a second element. So the first element or the first force is the seed. The second element or the second force is the moist ground. And once it's there, by ascent, by its own ascent, to fall in and literally die, being buried in that moist ground, a third force or a third element can come into play. And that's sunlight. And once the sunlight hits the first two elements, it reconciles all three and it brings them into play in such a way that a sprout can grow. And now there is new life. This third element, this force, this sunlight, it can't be controlled. It can only be met when the seed is willing to not be a seed anymore. And that's the key. The seed must be willing to give up being a seed. Because new life, transformed life, is just that. It's changed. It comes through in a new form. New identity. So to let go of the security that we think we have, which is illusion anyway, to let go of the identity of who we think we are, we think we're seeds, is to allow ourselves to move in to the second and third elements that will bring a changed life. This is so fundamental We hear this over and over again, not just in Christian tradition, but every tradition. There needs to be a dying. There needs to be a descent before there can be an ascent. There needs to be an emptying before there can be a filling. But most importantly, what we need to be willing to do is to let go of who we think we are, to die to that in order to move in. And so the idea of security and freedom, the radical freedom that Jesus is talking about, that freedom that allows us to to go anywhere fearlessly, is only going to take place when we stop clinging to the thing we think we have. Because that is our boat anchor. That is the shackle around our ankle. That is the the blinder that keeps us from seeing what is already here. And Jesus is constantly hammering at themes like these. You know, we are holding ourselves back simply by not being willing, by being too afraid to let go of the security that we think we have 
in order to move forward into a new identity. I have never quoted my daughter up here, but I'm going to quote my daughter this morning, and I am so proud and so excited to be able to do this. I can't tell you. My oldest daughter, Katie, um, she'll, be th- she'll be 30 in November. Oh, my gosh. Um, she is a special effects makeup artist, and she's, she's working in, in L.A., and she's doing all the zombie movies and the goriest things you can imagine. I think she's doing a hatchet movie right now or something like that. But we have a friend here, and, and uh, she has just gone through surgery, and she has some pretty bad scarring. And she was self-conscious about the scarring. I mean, who wouldn't be, right? And um, so she was wondering, you know, what do I do about the scarring? And Marion had had a conversation with her and said, hey, can you ask Katie? You know, she does special effects makeup. What would be the most effective thing to get rid of the scarring and allow her just to be able to be self-confident again? And so I texted Katie and she got back to me. And I want to read to you what she said because I just think it's perfect. First of all, On the practical level, she says, the only thing she can really do is fix the color. There are some makeups that could fill in divots in the skin, but it's meant for acne scars on the face, so it wouldn't last in high movement areas like a knee. Guys, just hang on for a second here. I know this is kind of weird. So to fix the discoloration, I would say Illustrator palette. It's alcohol-based paint, so you use 90% alcohol to activate the paint so water and sweat won't remove it. It's how we put special effects makeup on actors so their actions won't rub off their wound or monster makeup. They have palettes that come in skin tones. I suggest she comes to L.A. to pick up the palette so someone at the store can show her what colors to use, how to place them, because no one's skin is one flat color. To really disguise the scar, she has to fleck in other colors. And then she says you can go to Nigel's and Friends in North Hollywood, and she gives all the the, um, website addresses and all that sort of thing. And and I'm reading this thing, I think, man, this is a lot of work. This is much more than I thought it was going to be. I thought, oh, you could just simply get a little thing of something or other. But all of this work. Then she continues. Side note. My real advice is to embrace the scar. The palette is 75 to $80, and doing the makeup every day is time-consuming and will get expensive. I have huge scars on my arms from my elbow to my underarm, plus stretch marks and a ton of other scars, but those are usually under clothes. The arm scar puckers the skin and disfigures my arms a bit. I meet new people every day on set. Some people ask about it. Some people are smart enough or polite enough not to. But most people don't notice or care. The scar is me now. And it's her now. I say she finds a way to be happy with her new appearance. I guarantee she notices it more than anyone else. And this is coming from someone who used to try and hide it all the time and feel so much better not to care what people think and to be okay with the ways I'm not perfect. But my advice takes time to get to. In the meantime, she can try the palette. I am so proud of my little girl. Oh, my gosh. She's got more wisdom than I do. That's amazing. And, and she's, she's right. For years, she hid... She had long sleeves on in 90 degree weather. It didn't matter. She tried to hide and she went through all of that. And maybe just the sheer force of just getting worn out of trying to do that all the time and trying to hide all the time. I don't think it hurts that she got a a new boyfriend now who loves her just the way she is. I think that has something to do with it too. But she's moved past that. She's okay with that. You know, she can wear the short sleeves and whatever happens, happens. Let the chips fall where they may. Because what happened with my daughter is she was going through the horns of this dilemma, hide or not hide, back and forth, back and forth, until she finally met a third force, a third element, and that was acceptance. People accepted her the way she was, 
without having to do all of this work. And when she experienced that enough times, and when she probably just ran out of gas trying to hide things, finally that sprout sprouted. And she was able to write something like this that is just so beautiful and so radically free. Are we all that free to just let hang out what hangs out? You know, probably not. Do we have to go through something more intense? Maybe so. I don't know. But if we're not willing to die to the image that we have of ourselves, to let that go so that we can fall into the moist soil and then find that third force that transforms everything, we'll never get there. And so Jesus is trying to teach these things, but interestingly enough, his enemies use dilemmas against him to try to paint him into corners and back him into a place where they can attack him and discredit him and move him out of the sphere of influence that they're jealously guarding. And they use the same tactics on him. We've got uh, presidential debates coming up in a few months here, a couple months, I don't know, a few weeks. I don't know, it's probably coming up pretty quickly. And these televised affairs, you know, they're not really debates in a true sense, but everybody's looking for the knockout blow, aren't they? They're looking for this way to paint the opponent into a corner from which there is absolutely no escape. You know, and there's been great examples of that in the past, you know. Remember, I knew John Kennedy and you, sir, are no John Kennedy. You know, there's, there's, there's those moments in a debate that just galvanize and everybody's looking for that knockout blow. This is what the Pharisees were trying to do with Jesus. They were looking for a knockout blow. They're looking for a way to discredit him in such a way that he would lose all influence with the people. Or even better, they could get him thrown into prison or executed or something like that. And so they're on this tack. They're moving along these lines. And they're trying to find out exactly what it is that they can use against Jesus. And so a, couple of, a group of Pharisees come up to Jesus, and you'll remember this one, where he's teaching in the middle of the temple, right in the courtyard of the temple. And Pharisees show up in front of this crowd with a woman, and they throw her down in front of him. And they said, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. All right, the Mos- Moses told us that we need to stone such women. What do you say? What should we do? Okay, Jesus is now on the horns of the dilemma. What does he do? If he says stone her, then he's toast with the Romans because the Romans took away the Jews' right to execute anyone, the right to capital punishment. If he says stone her and they do it, then it's on Jesus and he'll be arrested for sedition. If he says don't stone her, then he's going to lose his credibility with the people because that's the law of Moses. And so between Roman law and Mosaic law, Jesus is on the horns of the dilemma. He's between the Scylla and the Charybdis, the rock and the hard place. What does he do? Jesus does something completely unexpected. He brings in a third force. What does he say? Between the two, he adds a third. He who is without stone, (laughs) he who is without sin, cast the first stone. Does it work the other way? I don't think so. He's without sin. Okay, you want a stoner? Any of you who are without sin, you throw the first rock. And slowly they just drop the rocks and they walk away until no one's left. And he says, where are your accusers? And she says, there's no one here. And he says, neither do I accuse you, but go and sin no more. What did Jesus add to the equation? What was the third force? It was compassion. It was empathy. Gosh, Have you ever not sinned before? Have you ever not wanted mercy before in your entire life? If you've never had that experience, okay, then you go ahead 
and throw that first stone. But if you're really going to think about it, you can see yourself as this woman. And are you really going to throw that first stone? It's the third force. It's the third element that reconciles all the others and moves things into a completely different space. Another time, they come up to him when he is probably at a crossroads out in the countryside, probably right in front of a poll tax booth because that's where they were. You know, they're kind of like way stations where you got to pay fees as truckers go by. They had poll taxes there, but these were owned and operated by Jews who were working for Romans. And they come up to him and said, is it lawful? Is it legal? Should we be paying poll taxes to the Romans who are the oppressors, who are the occupiers, and they were hated among the people? So... Jesus is right back on the horns of the dilemma, isn't he now? If he says, no, don't pay the poll taxes, then he's going to get picked up by the Romans again and thrown into prison for sedition. If he says, pay the poll taxes, the people are going to leave him in droves, and especially the zealots are going to turn on him, because the zealots were the guerrillas of their time. They were the ones who were driving insurrection against Rome, and the people hated the Romans, and they hated the taxes. They were so usurious, and they just were killing their ability to feed their families. So here's Jesus, again, on the horns of the dilemma. And what does he say? He says, bring me a coin that you used to pay the tax, and it's a denarius. Whose inscription is on it? Whose likeness? Well, it's Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. What is he introducing here? What's the third force? How did he get off the horns of the dilemma? He introduced a higher power than Rome's authority. He reminded them of when Israel was a theocracy, when they reported only to God. And he reminded them that there is an interior submission that is more important than the exterior submission. He reminded them of their spirituality, of what this really is about, of whose authority they really work under, no matter whose temporal authority is in play at any given moment. And he just got right off, wiggled right off the hook because he brought in that third element that transformed things. There's one more I want to do with you. And this one we can read together. If you take a look again at, uh, uh, on the screens or in your bulletins at Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and that's another great one, another great one where he silences the Sadducees. In fact, you can just read all of Matthew 22. Just go home and read Matthew 22. It's one of these after another, after another, after another. This is the last one where he finally shuts them all down for good. But when the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so here is Jesus back on the horns of the dilemma again. If he picks one, he's going to be wrong, you know, and they're going to just crucify him for it, metaphorically speaking because they can't do that for real. If he doesn't pick one, then they're going to claim that he's ignorant of the law. Either way, he's ignorant of the law. And either way, the lawyers are going to have him for breakfast if he picks one, if he doesn't pick one. And he says to them instead, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is quoting his, what we would call Old Testament scriptures, but their own books. This is the greatest and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So he picked, actually he picked two. But what is the third force that he brought in? What is the thing that they weren't seeing? You see, the Pharisees don't get it. 
because they are completely focused just on the law, the code of the law. But Jesus injects the purpose of the law, the intent of the law, what the law was all about. It wasn't about just a collection of all of these rules. It was about preserving life, the life of the group, the life of the people. It was about bringing the awareness of God's presence into every moment. He's reminding of the in, intent and the purpose. And he picks two laws that encapsulate the whole thing. The rest is just commentary, he's basically telling them. But then he turns the tables on them, doesn't he? He's going to ask them a question. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? In their language, Mashiach, which would be the Messiah. Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And this was part of, of Jewish heritage and Jewish thought and concept for centuries, for at least two to three centuries, that there would be a Messiah. Understand, the Jews had been laboring under foreign occupation for almost 400 years by this time. Starting with the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and then the Greeks and the Romans. One after another, these powers had moved through and subjugated this area. And in that period of time, there was this idea, this concept of a Messiah, a political leader, a warrior who would restore sovereignty. And they were looking at him as this. And he was going to come from the line of the lineage of David. And so he asked them, whose son is he? They say the son of David. And he says to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? And this is coming from Psalm 110 where he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. This Psalm 110 of David was always understood by the Pharisees and by the Jewish people to be a description of the Messiah. Then how can he say, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. The horns of the dilemma that Jesus is putting them on <laughs> is that in their culture, children revered their parents, but parents did not revere their children. They loved them, they cherished them, but they did not revere them. All the reverence went to child to parent. When your parent died, you said the Kaddish, the prayer of mourning, for 11 full months. If a child died, it was only three months. But there wasn't reverence. There wasn't that kind of respect. In other words, a father would never call a son Lord, ever. That would be anathema. But a son would call a father Lord. So how is it that if the Messiah is David's son, he calls him Lord? And they couldn't answer. Why? Because they're stuck at the cultural level. They're stuck at the physical level. They're stuck at the familial level, the level of their customs. And they're stuck at the legal level. They're understanding this Savior, this this Messiah to be a political ruler that's going to come out of this lineage and throw out the Romans and reestablish Israel. What's the third force that Jesus is bringing in here that they don't understand? He's bringing in the spiritual life. He's bringing in the interior spirituality of this, of this Savior. That the Savior was to save the nation of Israel from themselves, from their misunderstanding of their own scriptures didn't matter whose boot they were under. It mattered whether they could move with their God again, as they did at the beginning. And the words there in Psalm 110, the first Lord, which is capitalized, these are all capitalized here because it's a quotation, 
But when the Lord says to my Lord, the first Lord is Yahweh, or Y-H-V-H, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, the Tetragrammaton. The second Lord is Adonai. And so David is calling this Messiah his master, his Lord in that sense, because he is his spiritual master. And this is what the Pharisees couldn't understand. They couldn't solve the riddle, and so they at least stopped attacking him in this way, and this is when they started attacking him through backdoor channels, and eventually were able to get the Romans to kill him. But this idea here is so important for us to understand. Jesus trying to get them to to move in these directions, to understand that there is this third way of thinking that raises up our perspective. Why could Jesus always outsmart the Pharisees? Why could he outsmart everybody? Well, because he's God, right? That's a good answer. You know, he, does he need the knowledge of God and able to be this wise, in order to be this wise, in order to be able to, to put them back when they're coming at him in this way? You know, I think for our purposes, since Jesus told us that everything he did, we can do if we can follow his way. For us to be able to move this way of Jesus, we have to see that there's something that we can do as well, that it isn't exclusive to Jesus because of his station. But look at the pattern, the pattern of what's happening here. When we think in just two dimensions, we can get stuck on these dilemmas. There seems to be no way where to go. But if we can raise our perspective, something else happens. You know, someone once um, used the, and it was in a book, used the example of trying to get us to understand how predicting the future could be possible. And so he said, imagine that there's an intersection of roads in a cornfield, and the corn is 12 feet high, and you're in your car driving along, and so you're just driving through this, this canyon of corn, you know, and you're approaching an intersection. Well, on the cross street, there's another car who's approaching the intersection at the same time, and the two of you are on a collision course. You don't know that. You're just traveling down your canyon of corn. But now imagine that there is a watchtower right at the intersection, and someone who is there is watching all four streets in all four directions and can see that there is a collision coming. And if he's in radio contact with you, he can say, slow down, stop, you're going to have a wreck. And you say, that's amazing. You just predicted my future. What it really is is a raised perspective. The third force, the third element that comes into each one of these scenarios is that raised perspective that allows us to see what's really in operation. How do we make our choices? How do we do this? It's see the pattern. It's read the perspective. Take a look at your bulletins one more time. You see those nine dots there? in the lower right-hand corner. This is a classic puzzle. Have, have any of you seen this one before? This is the classic think-outside-the-box puzzle. How do you solve the puzzle? What you've got to do is you've got to put your pencil down on the paper and you've got to draw four lines. You never take your pencil off the paper. Four lines that will connect every one of those nine dots. Each line has to be straight. Each line has to end where the next one begins and you never take your pencil off the paper. How do you do it? So you can try and try and try, and we're not going to have time for you to try to figure this out, you know. <laughs> I will show you. Yeah, just like the Scylla and Charybdis. I'm not going to leave you hanging. But what it requires is to violate the terms which are implicit in the design. Most of us can't do this because we think we're supposed to stay bounded by the box that is implied by the nine dots. But if you're willing to think outside the box, if you're willing to let go of your preconceptions, 
then something different starts to happen. If you start at the dot on the lower right hand, go diagonally up to the dot on the first at uh, the upper left hand, that's your first line. Then go to the right, straight across the top line, but continue on as if there were a fourth dot. And then go diagonally down to the left through the last two dots, past as if there were a fourth, and then back up to the top. If that is too hard for you to understand, turn it over and look just at the bottom right of the note section and you'll see what it looks like. It looks like a little arrowhead. So simple once you see it, right? But what did you have to do in order to get there? You had to let go of the preconceptions. You had to let go of that, I'm supposed to do this within the box. or, or you know All of these rules that you think were present, if you let them go, if you let the seed go into the ground, then a third force can take place and a solution presents itself that wasn't there before. This is what Jesus is trying to teach us how to do. He's showing us time after time with all of his crazy expressions, hating your father and mother or you're not worthy of following me. All of these are expressions that are getting us off the horns of the dilemma that we put ourselves on because we're thinking two-dimensionally and not adding the third dimension that gives us the perspective to be able to see what's really at issue. This is what's going on here. This pattern is built into the actual understanding of the Godhead itself, if you think about it. Did you know, if you, have you thought about this? Jerusalem is the birthplace of monotheism. Monotheism as a whole. The three great monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all point to Abram, Abraham as their father and all come through Ju- Jerusalem. You know, In that order, Judaism probably starting 1500 to 2000 BC, Christianity in the first century, Islam in the seventh century, but they're all pointing to that same heritage there. The Jews were militantly monotheistic. Absolutely their God was one. It was everything that they stood on and stood for. Their greatest prayer, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But now for a small subset of Jews, they had not only experienced their God as Father, king of the universe, creator of everything, they've now experienced him as Jesus, walking among them, living with them, eating with them, laughing with them, playing with them, teaching them, and then dying with them. And then, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, now they experience him as spirit. What do you do with those three experiences? Father, Son, and Spirit. How do you reconcile all of those And for the first 300 years of Christianity, this was the major contention. This was the controversy. This is what every preacher on every street corner was coming up with another way of trying to solve that particular puzzle. How was God one, fiercely one, and yet we've experienced him as Father, Son, and Spirit? How does that work? Toward the end of the third century, there was a presbyter, a teacher by the name of Arius, who came up with an idea that really wasn't original with him, but he's the one who made it famous because it became a full-blown controversy in the Eastern Roman Empire. And he said that Jesus was a created being. He wasn't eternal as the Father was eternal. He was begotten. He was made. He had a beginning point, which made him subservient to the Father, which made him not on the same plane of divinity as the Father. And that solved that problem for him. It got him off the horns of the dilemma, right? You just flop down to one side. Oh, Jesus isn't God in the same way that Father is God. Therefore, God is still one, all right? 
that didn't sit so well with a lot of the other presbyters and, and people within the Roman Empire. And the ensuing controversy was tearing the empire apart because Christianity had grown to a pretty large percentage of the Roman Empire by then. So much so that the Emperor Constantine, who was trying to put the empire back together again, realized he needed to solve this problem or his empire was going to end up in civil war. And so he called the first church council at Nicaea in 325 and he told the bishops, solve this problem. Solve it. And so what did they do? Arius, who had pulled the pendulum over to the side of Jesus' humanity, they just yanked it over to the side of his divinity. And they came up with the idea of homoousios, which means that father and son are made of exactly the same substance. They are both co-eternal. They are both God in exactly the same way. And they added that we also believe in spirit, but they really didn't identify spirit too much at that point. So they pulled it one way. The, the council pulled it the other way. And they got off the horns of the dilemma by simply falling down to one side or another. Didn't solve anything, really. Didn't satisfy anyone, really. But at least it got them politically out of the hot seat. They were able to pass the potato on to somebody else. So who is Jesus? I mean, this is still the, the question that we're trying to ask. There are consequences to any choice that we make. There are consequences when we fall down to one side or another. And Brendan Manning tackles this in just a little couple of paragraphs here in his book, Ruthless Trust. And we talked about this last week. There is God's transcendence where he is over and above our experience and then there is imminence where he's working through and among and within us. And if we fall down to one side or another, divinity or humanity, we lose the mix of the two. And this is what Brennan is, is, is shooting at here. He says, in the pages of church history, we find a luminous illustration of the devastating consequences wrought by unbalanced attention to one or the other aspect of the Godhead, transcendence or imminence, otherness or togetherness. It started with the greatest of all ancient heresies, Arianism, which denied the divinity of Christ. The church reacted with a one-sided emphasis on Christ's divinity at the expense of his humanity. But the long-range effects of this distortion introduced a spiritual malaise that was to last for centuries. First and most important, Jesus the God-man had crossed over, so to speak, and was now on God's side. Christ himself was not, quote, our brother in the flesh, unquote, but the awful and unapproachable God. As his humanity receded into the background, Jesus was relegated to the infinite sphere of the divine. Jesus' intimate communion with his disciples was obscured. His word, quote, make your home in me as I make mine in you, from John 15:4, was ignored or forgotten. As the vine was severed from the branches, the Christ of God became remote and inaccessible. The memory of Jesus as a man like us in all things but sin, from Hebrews 4.15, was overlaid by his divine presence. Who would dare to approach him with the confidence that we would find mercy and grace in time of need? The skewed stress on the divinity of Christ inevitably opened up a yawning gulf between the children of God and the transcendent Savior. You see, between the Father and the Son, between transcendence and imminence, there's a third force. And the third force that they weren't considering was a spirit. The spirit is the third force between these two. The principle, the force that reconciles all three. It's never either or. This third force, this spirit, is our way of seeing. 
The disciples didn't know what to do after Jesus' crucifixion. They were lost. Even after the appearances of the risen Christ, they were still lost. They didn't understand how to reconcile this. Is he alive? Is he dead? Is he here? Is he there? What is he? It wasn't until traditionally 50 days later at Pentecost when the Spirit roars through their upper room that they start to see from a raised perspective and they start to understand what's going on and they finally get the power and the meaning and the purpose that propels them to completely turn the Roman Empire upside down. But until that third force came, until they were willing to let fall and to let die everything that they thought they understood about their relationship with Jesus, everything that they thought they understood about his mission, what he was trying to do in their lives, individually and collectively, they couldn't get to that place. The Spirit was not going to be able to show them what is going on. The Spirit is our way of seeing beyond every rock and hard place, beyond the dilemmas that we put ourselves into because we're not thinking from a raised perspective. If you find yourself at an impasse in life, maybe it's an intellectual impasse like the predestination and free will impasse. I mean, how are you going to get past that one? You know, it just looks like one or the other no matter what you're doing and you're just sort of lost in there. Is it predestined? Is it my choice? Between heaven and hell, between justice and mercy, that's one that we're always fighting under. When are we just? When are we merciful? How do we choose between the two? And of course, between security and freedom in our daily choices, in jobs, in family, and in everything that we do. If you're stuck in one of those impasses, one of those dilemmas, is because you're looking at life flat. You're looking at life in two dimensions. And you have allowed that viewpoint to guide you long enough that you are now stuck in this ditch and there seems to be no way out. But the way out is to go back to where you started, to allow to let go of your assumptions, your pre-existing conditions, and let something else move. Let the seed fall into the ground Let the sunlight penetrate and something will change. Spirit is always available to us, always there to raise us up to a third force. But until we have learned to quiet our minds, until we have learned to step away from all of that stuff that's constantly churning in our heads, we're not going to be able to receive it. We're not going to be able to let it do its thing. And of course, we're back to the contemplative way. We're back to Jesus' way of living and praying which allows us to just pull away, to see the things that we're clinging to, to let them go so that we, like a seed, can fall into this place. It predisposes that we are willing to become something different than we think we are in order to find this new and different life. And then we'll no longer be bound by a hard place and a rock. Now, This may seem pretty nonspecific to you. And if you're thinking about the difficult decisions in your life, you're thinking, well, how does this going to help that? You know, if you're dealing with family members, if you're dealing with addiction, the things in your life that seem so intractable and things that you can't solve, how is this going to help? What I can tell you is that kingdom, living in kingdom, does not change the circumstances we find ourselves in. What it changes is our point of view in order to be able to deal with the circumstances we find ourselves in. And if those circumstances are unchangeable, then we will find that third way 
to be able to live richly in the midst of unchangeable circumstances. Pay the taxes, don't pay the taxes. The Romans might be here to stay, but your life can be abundant and full of meaning and purpose. Once you realize that's not the issue, there is a deeper issue that we're here to address, and this is what it's all about. Allowing us to see meaning and purpose in everything is the Spirit's job. Our job is to allow ourselves like the seed to fall into the ground and meet that third force, that third element that can take us exactly where Jesus was at, allowing us to go. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be here. It's good to play music and eat food and sing songs and tell stories and and just gather and know that we're gathering in your name for a purpose that is greater than ourselves. As we move through life and as we make difficult decisions or face with difficult decisions, just again, help us to be willing to let go, to find your presence in the midst of everything that will give us that new life, new wind and sails and the ability to keep breathing and to keep moving, taking steps. Give us the trust and the confidence that we will find that way through if we just keep coming back to your door, keep finding you in the midst of everything that we do. Father, thank you for loving us the way that you do. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.